And now to present today's speaker, uh, a figure well known to many of us. We welcome Dr. Nicholas Cockler. Dr. Cockler is the Andy and Bev Hansel Endowed Chair in Applied Healthcare Ethics and the Regional Director at Providence Center for Healthcare Ethics. Dr. Cockler will transition into the role of Vice President System Ethics Services for Providence St. Joseph Health later this year. And in his current role as chair, um, his roles include institutional leadership, working with the internal medicine and residency, internal medicine and family medicine residencies on ethics education, and also supports ethics consultation throughout the Oregon region. As holder of the endowed chair, Dr. Cockler engages in collaborative outreach uh, as well as research and scholarship representing the work of the Ethics Center in the community and in professional publications and conferences. Dr. Cockler's research interests are broad and center on the intersection of the disciplines, including health sciences, philosophical ethics, theology, and anthropology. He publishes articles and presents papers in healthcare ethics regionally, nationally, and internationally. Currently, he is authoring the forthcoming fifth edition of an introduction to bioethics. Dr. Cockler holds an interdepartmental doctorate in healthcare ethics, as well as other graduate degrees in philosophy and biotechnology. We are so incredibly grateful for the expertise that he brings to the Providence family and community. And we're delighted to learn again from Dr. Cockler today. Thank you, I'll turn it over to you, Nick. Thank you so much for that kind introduction, Laura, and uh, it's a privilege to be here uh, once again with you all and uh, just wanted to put a little bit of a footnote on this presentation. And as you mentioned, I am transitioning to a new role, but uh, the title of this presentation is not by coincidence. Uh, it was actually in 2010 that I started my time here in Portland at the center. And so this is a bit of a uh, um, if you can think of a memoir and medical grand round sort of uh, merged together, that's uh, that's what you will you will be getting. My my overall goal for this morning is to share with you uh, how we see ethics consultation operating within Providence. It is a as we see it a professional clinical service and one that I I suspect that there may be varying uh, levels of understanding. So. Overall, my goal is to shine a light on the practices and the um, variations of ethics consultation that you see within Providence, but also might see outside of Providence and other practice settings. So with that as a, as a prelude, I'd like to uh, invite you to think about what words come to mind when you think of ethics consultation. And if you're so inclined, please feel free to put uh, these into the chat. Um, this is a very kind of uh, Freudian word association type of exercise. So just to get our minds into this space of an ethics consultation and ethics in clinical settings, what comes to mind? Give you all a few minutes to uh, to do that. Okay. 
I want you to just hold some space for, for what's coming to the surface for you. You don't have to uh, put it into the chat. I just want you to call to mind some of those things because I do think ethics and ethics consultation is, is something that is a, a bit prone to some mythologies and I hope to uh, um, uh, help explore that with you. Yes, messy, muddy quagmire. Those are words that uh, I find myself uh, often using. Um, Great. Okay, well, as that is is uh, simmering in your mind, I'm going to pivot and invite you to think about one other question. What clinical situations do you typically associate with ethics consultation? So when you find yourself in your practice setting thinking about ethics or thinking about an ethical question, what are those clinical situations that you often um, uh, sense there's an ethical, uh, a strong ethical dimension to? And just reading through some of the uh, answers here so far, tough issue, controversy, professional dissonance, moral distress, slowing down, complex case, stuck, end of life issues, end of life, moral distress, you know, a whole range of things. And, and I'll share some of the data that we have on the types of issues and types of clinical situations that we've been typically consulted in. And um, uh, hopefully that illuminates this a little bit for you. So my objectives today are, are quite simple, uh, just to describe ethics consultations within uh, Providence and in general, uh, to identify some clinical scenarios where it may be helpful to have an ethics consult, and then to begin to understand how, how to uh, frame the impact of ethics consults in health outcomes and measures. And this is a, a bit of a frontier area for the field of healthcare ethics and, and, and also here in Providence. And, uh, uh, hopefully we can work together to best uh, best understand that kind of impact. I have nothing to disclose uh, and uh, uh, something that comes to mind is uh, bribing an ethicist is not a viable economic uh, model. So um, that is something that <coughs> uh, I can gladly uh, state. Oop. Okay. So as an entryway into understanding what clinical scenarios uh, might benefit from an ethics consultation, I want to take a moment and just talk about what I would term the natural history of ethical issues in healthcare. And I would invite you to think about this possibility. What if there are ethical issues embedded in every clinical encounter? It is actually a, a, um, a perspective of mine that there are ethical issues embedded in every clinical encounter. The question is, when do they become problematic? When do they interfere with uh, clinical decisions and the plan of care? That's what I want to explore with you today. And to help ground our discussion this morning, I'm going to be sharing a case with you. Uh, so this is uh, a case from our consult service. Um, and it involves a 73-year-old man 
who is, uh, quote, sent to Portland in his RV from the Midwest where his wife remains. He is hospitalized with hip pain, uh, possible lumbar stenosis, and received a steroid injection for management of this condition and palliation. Uh, he's new to our services, so he, uh, we don't have a full workup or history of him, but he does have possible vascular dementia. It uh, does appear that he has alcohol-related dementia. He's noted to have frequent falls and appears to, to meet the failure to thrive uh, description. OT says that upon discharge, he would benefit from 24-hour supervision. His ACL is on the order of three, uh, three point uh, X. His slums is 10. And yet he is adamant he wants to go back to his RV in his home where he believes he can care for himself. He has a daughter that's local um, and who reports that his walker doesn't fit in the RV. He has a son that is also a local but doesn't want to be involved. And a third daughter who's back on the East Coast uh, who uh, we haven't really engaged yet. He's described as having low frustration tolerance. Uh, and uh, at home, it's reported he receives meals on wheels. There is interestingly an APS investigation on the daughter um, being investigated for financial abuse. And uh, there is a question about guardianship per both daughters uh, and interest in pursuing that for him. So this confluence of factors have raised the specter of uh, discharge and disposition. What do we do in his case? So hold that, hold that scenario, if you will, uh, as we go forward. We hope that ethics consultation and ethics education in general helps to transform the technical skill and knowledge that you have as caregivers into professional practices and therapeutic relationships in healthcare. We hope it does this by offering a degree of prudence or prudential judgment in avoiding default decisions, a degree of integrity in decision-making by managing the moral hazards of any given situation, and a sort of a peace of mind or a fully formed conscience to avoid and mitigate the effects of moral distress and avoid moral injury if at all possible. You know, going back to this case, we could say that one default decision might be, well, he doesn't have a guardian yet and he is telling us what he wants to do. So maybe the default is he's his own decision maker and we let him go home. Alternatively, a default decision could be, well, gosh, his, his uh, assessment suggests he needs a lot of help uh, and seems to be pretty impaired. So maybe he lacks capacity and we should just turn to a surrogate decision maker like one of his daughters. But what more? What else is here that we need to unearth and unpack to better understand what's going on? There are certainly a tremendous amount of moral hazards here. He's, he's an elderly man who does have uh, significant um, and multiple medical conditions that are complicating his care. Uh, he has a complicated social network. Um, his, uh, he's married, but not with his wife. He's got children all across the country. Uh, some have different uh, interests in uh, being involved. So all of this sort of brings to the fore a real kind of uh, messy, if I can borrow that word, situation here on how do we think about the, uh, the best course of action, the best disposition for, for him uh, in the given circumstances. And finally, uh, I, I would suspect that a great many of you, if you were in the shoes of the uh, attending provider or the person writing the discharge orders, 
would not feel uh, an insignificant amount of moral distress. How do we protect him from harm? A harm that we foresee is likely to occur uh, given our, our, our commitment to uh, patient safety uh, at discharge. So all of this is sort of flowing together and they're not mutually exclusive. The dilemma relates to the feeling of distress and, uh, and here we are. In fact, it is this kind of uh, tension or, or connection rather between the domain of action, what do we do? What disposition is best for him and morally defensible? And the sense of accountability or intention. How is my integrity going to be preserved in whatever decision comes out of this? So here we have two different kinds of ethical questions. What is the right thing to do? Or what, what decision makes the most good and the least harm for this person? And then how do I think about my uh, culpability for the decision at play? What, what, what am I praiseworthy for? What, am I bl what is blameworthy uh, for me? So it's this sense of integrity in the exercise of my professional conscience. My suggestion is that if we leave these ethical issues untreated, this could result in patient harm, poor quality care, and the erosion of integrity or moral distress and moral injury of the person or persons involved, the moral agents, if you will, the, the, those who are making the decision as part of a shared decision-making process. So my hypothesis, my suggestion here is that it is the problematic ethical issues that cause the moral turbulence in the flow of patient care. So when we encounter that kind of turbulence, how do we get through it? How do we get back on course? How do we resolve or address the disruption of patient care to get back on, on the pathway to, to healing? Let me take a step back and talk about ways that we think about uh, clinical ethics integration. I'm borrowing this uh, paradigm from spiritual care and from palliative care uh, in thinking about three levels of integration. The first level, what we would call primary ethics, is in the care encounter itself. It's when direct caregivers or the patients and family members themselves figure out, identify and figure out the, re the resolution to the ethical issues. So it's within the context of that therapeutic relationship that people are empowered to address and resolve, if you will, or, or work through the ethical issues without the additional support of um, uh, colleagues or ethics consultants. It is within the scope of their roles that they do this. The second level of uh, clinical ethics integration is what we would call clinical ethics support. And now this is uh, done through a variety of mechanisms and you'll see that there's a lot of variation across uh, the country in how this is described. Uh, here it could be as a range, it could range from you're appealing to the chain of command or to a trusted colleague or faculty member in figuring out what the right course of action is. In other settings, it might be you're calling the mission leader or the ethics committee member that you know and bouncing off ideas and how do I think about this or I'm not sure what this policy says. It's this level of support is to clarify uh, issues related to policy and protocol. Uh, and also answering basic uh, basic questions that have an ethical connotation. 
The third level of ethics integration is what we would call formally an ethics consultation, a tertiary ethics level. This is when you have professionally trained ethics consultants or ethicists perform a clinical service to, uh, to better the patient care or to help, um, help avoid or manage the disruptions in patient care related to ethical issues. So in this case of Mr. M, we'll call him, uh, primary ethics would be the team itself identifying and figuring out the course of action. Uh, and uh, that could be the multidisciplinary team meeting during rounds or during a team meeting to sort out the issues. It could also be um, an appeal to, you know, a higher level of support within the unit or within the department. So in this in instance, it was the teaching service who had uh, uh, called the issue uh, of this disposition plan. The resident on that particular service could have reached out to a faculty member and asked, what do we do in these types of situations? Or called the ethics committee member. Um, in this instance, they reached out to ethics. They paged the ethicist directly and uh, that consultation uh, began. And I'll, I'll describe that uh, as we go forward. You'll note the little QR code in the right-hand side of your screen. This QR code would take you to the center's SharePoint page that describes cl clinical ethics consultation and provides a variety of resources and materials for, for you to, to explore further. So I am uh, fond of uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's model of flow. Now, some of you may not be familiar with his work. He's a psychologist who has studied uh, happiness and he's written quite, a, quite extensively on this concept of flow. And essentially, this is a, a way of describing how people are, how they do their work, that they get into this state of flow that, uh, that is highly correlated with happiness. And this particular graph is an adaptation of his uh, understanding of flow, which is this uh, central uh, uh, flowing uh, diagram or line arrow from the lower left to the upper right. So the axes are, the vertical axis is the challenge intensity to the caregiver. So the intensity of the issues or the ethical problems and the, the horizontal axis is the competency of the caregiver to address those issues. The greater the challenge and the lower the competency, the more likely you are to have an experience of anxiety. The lower the challenge and the lower the competency, you're more likely to feel a sense of apathy. If you're highly competent but not, are not challenged, you are likely to feel a sense of boredom. So in Csikszentmihalyi's model, flow is this directionality of the sweet spot between challenge and competency that we hope we can attain. As I said, ethical issues can be, when they become problematic, can be the turbulence that interferes with that flow. So clinical ethics support could be that little extra little nudge back into the stream, if you will, of, of the uh, plan of care. Uh, when there is a significant turbulence, the ethics consultation can be there to help redirect and uh, bring us back to that flow of care. So this is the sort of the, the meta thinking that, that uh, we have developed over the years when it comes to what is an ethics consultation, how does it fit within the clinical setting, and how is it integrated with other resources that caregivers may have uh, to it or bring, bring, bring to bear. 
Uh, to be sure, there are other alternative models for understanding ethics consults. Pavlish and, and colleagues have described uh, what, are, what lends oneself to an increased risk of what they call ethical conflict. And they, they describe um, the confluence of, of different circumstances or factors being interactional. So different worldviews, different value sets, and in the interaction can create that conflict. System issues like limited resources or uh, um, um, wraparound services that just don't exist. And personal circumstances like complexity, medical complexity, um, family uh, uh, setting, uh, home uh, setting, social determinants of health, and so on. Our colleague to the north in Providence, Mary Homan, has also provided a really helpful model uh, adapted from the Gelberg-Anderson behavioral model for vulnerable populations. And she relates predisposing factors, enabling factors, needs factors to health outcomes. So understanding the what predisposes and lends oneself to the need for an ethics consult, and then how does that translate to the impact on, say, utilization, realization rate, length of stay, uh, readmission rate, etc. The life cycle of a typical ethics consult, you have here the, the disruption, uh, that, that turbulence that then is identified by the ethicist around particular issues. We perform various consult activities like reviewing the chart, interviewing the requester, participating in family meetings or team meetings. There are a variety of ethical interventions that we create, cre for example, creating moral space for dialogue, uh, affirming moral sentiments, and sometimes just bearing witness to the angst of others, that listening ear. Um, it also can be disclosing our ethical thinking and explaining why this is ethically defensible or this is not. And finally, the, the goal here is to connect the outcomes of our interventions and our activities to the issues that have been identified as interrupting the care of the patient. And so our hope is that we can restore that flow back to um, proper patient care. This is an example of some of the um, issues that Pavlish and colleagues have found in the frequency of encountering ethically complex situations. This is a survey of physicians, I believe in the UCLA system. You might recognize one of the co-authors names in this document uh, that came out in uh, the American Journal of Bioethics, uh, Empirical Bioethics in 2015. That's right, that's my colleague, Kevin Dirksen, one of the other ethicists here at Providence, co-author on this piece. So what do we see here at Providence? Now this is data that's year to date in 2021. And this is this mirrors uh, years past. So uh, it's, it's worth noting that uh, there hasn't been much variation, at least in the last re few recent years, around the themes that we, see, that we see in our clinical consultation trends. So the most common theme that we encounter are, is an ambiguous decision-making mechanism. So that can range from uh, whether the patient has capacity, who's the appropriate surrogate, uh, whether to, uh, how do we make decisions for someone who is incapable and lacks a surrogate. Medically disinterested patients, so this is the patient uh, that, uh, or, or the person who does not want to uh, effectively or can't effectively engage in the recommended treatment plan. So how do we provide the optimal care for that person in those given circumstances. 
And then the third theme, the third most common theme that we tend to see in our clinical services is what I would term postponed decision making due to a variety of circumstances, be they social, psychosocial factors impeding the effectiveness of communication or uncertainty derivative of the clinical uh, circumstances. So we don't know what the patient's prognosis is and we, we haven't been able to do the diagnostic workup. Uh, these types of things that can delay a decision um, in, in the, in the uh, care of the patient. Dissecting this a little bit further, uh, we see that the most common issue identified uh, is how to provide optimal care given the patient's manner of engagement. Now you'll notice on the right-hand side here, I have uh, filtered this list of issues to those top three themes that uh, I mentioned in the previous slide here. So that is the most common issue that we encounter. And to give you a sense of how this is uh, colloquially referred to, this is the non-compliant or uh, the non-adherent patient. Um, I've tried very hard to avoid those terms given the connotation uh, that they can uh, present to patients. So this is trying to reframe the uh, non-compliance issue away from sort of this power dynamic to, well, how do we provide the optimal care to the patient given how they engage? And uh, how to address psychosocial factors, uncertainty derivative of social contingencies. So this is, um, this is ethics jargon for, this is a complex family situation. How do we navigate it? Or there's uh, estrangement from the children who are now back into the picture. How do we navigate that? Pay attention to these two highlighted uh, issues because I'll come back to those when we talk about our case. We do have an, a clinical ethics screening tool, which you see the QR code to link there for you. Um, if you're thinking, or wondering whether a, a, a situation would benefit from a clinical consult with an ethicist, ask yourself these three questions. Is it about a specific identifiable patient? Is it possible that the consult outcome will be influenced? Well, excuse me. Is it possible that the consult outcome will influence the plan of care? And is this case uh, complex enough necessitating a subject matter expert, the ethicist, beyond what is available to the team immediately. So turning back to our case, I mentioned that this request comes from the teaching service regarding the disposition of a patient back to his preferred disposition or home versus going to a facility, which is what was recommended. Yes, it is about a specific identifiable patient, Mr. M. The result of the consent consult is likely to influence the, uh, the treatment decisions, in this case, particularly his disposition, and it is a complex case. There's multiple comorbidities, it's a complex family unit, and so on. As the ethicist, we can identify the theme of ambiguous ethical decision-making, specifically whether the patient demonstrates sufficient capacity to make his own decisions, and uh, how do we provide the optimal care given the patient's manner of engagement. Now, you might be wondering, I thought I saw that his slum score was 10. How can we still be wondering whether the patient demonstrates sufficient capacity? This is what it, what, what, why it's important to get into the weeds of a particular case. The slums is, is in this sense, a screening tool and can fluctuate. When the caregivers interviewed this patient, he was able to communicate and express his preferences. And so there, there became a real 
um, th there was almost discordance in the data. Upon interview, he seems to be able to understand the consequences of his choices. He's able to articulate those to us. He clearly has uh, an orientation to independence and values being at home. So he does have risk factors for diminished capacity, but it's also ambiguous whether he lacks or is demonstrating a sufficient lack of capacity to warrant uh, imposing on his liberty. The other point to, to be raised here, and it gets a little bit further down in the ethical analysis of this case, is that respecting one's autonomy is not just about capacity. There are three components to autonomy. Someone's liberty or voluntariness, uh, their capacity or competency to manage their affairs, and uh, a, um, an orientation to values and interests. So respecting his autonomy is um, in part making sure we don't uh, unduly interfere with his liberty, that we take to heart what his values and his interests are, and understand his degree to actively participate in that decision-making process through his, uh, when he is capable of making his own decisions. So, what is an ethics consultation and how do we, how do we, what do we see in terms of the prevalence of this practice uh, in, within Providence and beyond? So there's, uh, the, the, the old joke is, if you ask four ethicists for a definition or an opinion on a subject, you're likely to get six to eight opinions. So I'm offering to you three definitions that have been very informative to us over the past 10 years. The first is from the American Society of Bioethics. It is, it defines uh, ethics consultation, healthcare ethics consultation, as a set of services provided by an individual or group in response to questions from patients, families, surrogates, healthcare professionals, or other involved parties who seek to resolve uncertainty or conflict regarding value-laden concerns that emerge in healthcare. Our policy here in the Oregon region simply states that, a clinic, that an ethics consultation is a clinical consultation with ethics to help address ethical issues or concerns that might arise in healthcare. And there's the QR code to link to that on PolicyStat. That link will only be, all these QR uh, code links will only work if you're on a Providence network or signed in to uh, uh, the Providence network. We have also developed over the years a bylaws for the professional practice of clinical ethics consultation. And those bylaws define uh, clinical ethics consultation as a patient care practice to address the ethical issues involved in a specific clinical case. The central purpose of it is to improve the process and outcomes of patient care by helping to identify, analyze, and resolve ethical problems. So where can you get an ethics consult here in Providence? In the Oregon region, you can obtain a clinical ethics consultation across the care continuum. You can obtain it in the hospitals, in the acute care setting, you can obtain it in the clinics or the ambulatory care setting, and you can obtain an ethics consultation through our home and community services. So it's, it's uh, across the continuum of care. How do you request an ethics consultation? You can either call or message the center or an ethicist directly. You can pay just via AMCOM, 
or you can enter a, an order or a referral uh, in Epic. If the patient is an inpatient in one of our hospitals, you can order uh, an ethics consult just like you would order a cardiology consult. If you're in the clinic, it's an ambulatory referral to ethics that should be available in the same way that you would uh, order a referral to any other uh, specialty service. Um, so the slums, I see a question here. Uh, can someone define slums? That I, be, I believe it is the St. Louis University uh, mental status uh, assessment, and it's a uh, a tool to um, uh, measure the degree of cognitive impairment uh, in a person at a particular time. Uh, there's a lot more to it, but that's essentially what the slums uh, score is. It is not um, necessarily uh, indicative of uh, a capacity assessment. So those two are related, but they are distinct. What does the data tell us about who performs ethics consultations? So I'm, I'm drawing from two national surveys that were published by Fox and colleagues over the past uh, two decades. And uh, I'll just note that, the, that, that there are a number of methodological issues with these surveys. Uh, they're dependent on the best informant who may not be the person who is in fact the best informant. And it also is tends to be very acute care focused. So the survey itself doesn't really even fit how Providence uh, has organized its ethics consultation services. So it sort of presupposes um, a facility-based, a hospital-based consult service, and that's not how uh, we have organized ourselves over the years. Nevertheless, it does provide some illuminating comparisons, and so we can uh, certainly explore the, the, the limitations of the study and its applicability, but um, it is what we have. So what we see, the first three rows uh, describe who is doing the consult. And there are three um, major models. There's the individual consultant model, the small team model, and the ethics committee model. In 2000, Fox and colleagues found that only 9% of ethics consultation services of their respondents uh, had an individual consultant model. Compare that to 68% had a small team model and 23% had a committee model. You'll see the trends in the 2018 column here that more uh, respondents have identified an individual consultant model as uh, operating within their system and fewer uh, committee models. So more often in other practice settings, you'll see fewer ethics committees doing consult work uh, than you would an individual or a small team. Uh, the small team model did decrease a little bit, but um, generally in the same ballpark as it was in 2000. In terms of what Providence has done, in 2010 when I started here, the individual consultant model was applicable for uh, highly complex cases that were escalated up um, past the small team or the committee uh, model in our hospitals, which were operating depending on where you were within our region. Now we've centralized the uh, consultation service and all eight of our hospitals uh, operate with primarily the individual consultant model um, however, in some cases, the individual ethicist will work with ethics committee members uh, to perform or complete the process of an ethics consultation. Yeah, think about how we might work with uh, our colleagues in Seaside or Medford where we can't easily get there on a moment's notice that we, we will partner with our colleagues um, uh, who are there in person. The number of indi individuals uh, hospitals have performing consults in the past year 
You see that decrease from nine to seven. At Providence, we have two professionally trained ethicists doing ethics consultations. Across the country, those who are fellowship or graduate uh, uh, have a graduate degree in ethics. Only 5% doing ethics consults in 2000 uh, had that level of professional training. It's up a little bit to 8% in, in the 2018 survey. In, 2000, in 2010 and now in 2020, we have 100% uh, of our staff or two uh, have a fellowship and or graduate degree professional uh, training in ethics consultation. In terms of formal supervision as part of the professional training, only about 40% um, nationally have formal supervision of doing ethics consults in their training, uh, whereas uh, both Kevin and I have had that as part of our um, part of our professional uh, development. The financial support seen as sufficient uh, for ethics consultations. 83% of respondents said it was sufficient in 2000. That's down significantly to about 57% in 2018. And all I can say is that per the literature that we've seen in uh, conference presentations, um, based on our constellation of clinical services and programs, we are about one FTE uh, below what we could be or should be. Who engages the process of consultation? So this is uh, another interesting uh, slide to show the trends here. Anyone involved, directly involved in the case can request an ethics consultation. Only 95% of uh, those surveyed in 2000 uh, said that that was true. That is up to about 100% now for nationally and at Providence. Um, must the attending grant permission? Uh, you'll see the trend downward to no. Um, must the attending be notified? Uh, the, again, a significant trend downward to from 76% to 57, 56%. Um, what's interesting about these two um, data points is that the majority of our consults in Providence are requested by attending providers. So uh, that is, um, I, I think, a noteworthy disclaimer to these st statistics. Must the patient or surrogate grant permission? You see that, again, significantly dropped from 24% to 0.2%. Uh, and um, must the patient or surrogate be notified? Again, this is a bit of a controversial issue in the field, uh, but dropped from about 60% to about 25%. To give you a sense of where our volumes are compared to the national survey, I've highlighted here. Um, this table is taken from the Fox um, uh, article published in 2020, uh, 2021. You see our small hospitals here are in the uh, first uh, cohort, one to 99 beds. Medford and Willamette Falls are in the next uh, tier, and Portland, Providence Portland Medical Center, and St. Vincent's. You see here that based on 2019 data, and I did that uh, to avoid the um, uh, potential impact of the COVID uh, pandemic on our consultations, but you'll see that by and large, we are either at or above the national average for these these hospitals of that of those bed size sizes. With the exception of interestingly, St. Vincent's, uh, the 500 plus uh, bedside size uh, the national mean is about 75, 74%. St. Vincent's last year had uh, a 64 uh, inpatient consultations. I should mention 
that these numbers are only for acute care inpatient ethics consultations for which there was an order entered in EPIC. So this is actually a conservatively small number and actually our actual numbers are much greater than this. So I'm for comparison purposes, I try to be very conservative in uh, what I was comparing. Uh, we are a non-government church operated uh, healthcare system. So you see how our numbers can compare to that. Uh, based on the definition provided by Fox and colleagues, we have uh, four hospitals that are minor, minor teaching hospitals. That is, they have uh, ACGME accredited residency programs, and you see how we compare there. So the number of case consultations performed uh, within the last year, you see in here, I did use 2020 data to show essentially that the, the COVID pandemic uh, did not really impact uh, or diminish our consult volume last year. Although if you look the month to month, we did have a dip in April when we suspended elective uh, procedures and had uh, lower censuses, census in our hospitals. But in any case, uh, you see that PPMC and St. Vincent's last year are in roughly the 97th percentile <clears throat> compared to national, um, the, the national uh, percentage of hospitals. You see the spread uh, uh, elsewhere in our system. This is an interesting slide because it shows the growth in the number of case consultations from the 20 uh, from the 2000 to the 2018 surveys. And in the uh, 2000 survey, they noted a linear relationship between the uh, size of the hospital and the number of consults performed. What you see in the 2018 data is an, uh, a logarithmic relationship. And the hypothesis here is that the more ethicists you have on staff, the more consultations you're going to have. Now, whether that's a causal relationship or whether that is a indicative of uh, consults that have um, more of a need that hasn't been met, uh, I think is where the interesting conversation needs to go with our um, further analysis of these numbers. To recreate that uh, particular slide using our data, uh, I only had access to um, EPIC data back to 2013, so uh, not exactly the date range of our uh, published colleagues, but you, you see um, in both instances a bit of a logarithmic uh, relationship. Now the interesting thing again is uh, St. Vincent's being the larger hospital uh, fits <coughs> kind of interestingly nicely uh, between PPMC and Willamette Falls and Medford. Um, but uh, both in uh, 2013 and in 2020, there's a bit of a logarithmic relationship, which uh, again, we have centralized our clinical ethics consultation services. So um, the hypothesis of the correlation with ethicists being on staff, I think uh, is still affirmed in, with these data. If we look at the annual volumes by year in ministry, we see uh, a general trend of growth. Um, now in 2014, it is noted that we had three ethicists on staff, one that was embedded at St. Vincent's, one at PPMC and one at Milwaukee. And you see um, notably that the Milwaukee and Willamette Falls uh, case volumes increased uh, with the introduction of that third ethicist in that, uh, at those sites. Um, when we, uh, when Father Tui retired in 2017, uh, we reorganized our coverage and we uh, 
went to a rotation of coverage, and we also introduced quarterly site visits, which I think correlates with the increase in the number of consults in Medford. This big bump here. Um, so, look at the units. Um, this is a, a bit of a messy slide, but you see generally uh, the number of, of hospital units um, requesting ethics consultation does reflect the hospital-based numbers. Um, it does appear that there are uh, the top 10, there are more St. Vincent departments in the top 10 departments requesting consults, um, but that tells me uh, one interpretation that I have and one hypothesis I want to test further is that uh, ethics consultations are requested more broadly at a ministry like uh, Prof Portland um, in more departments uh, because of their size, the size of their volumes. Interestingly, uh, that uh, within the Portland metro area, um, critical care units were not uh, a, a top tier uh, department requesting uh, ethics consultations. So back to our case, uh, as I mentioned, the requester was a teaching service. The initial contact method was, was direct page. Uh, the EMR order did follow. The location was at PPMC. The clinical domains that I found were relevant included internal medicine, neurology, orthopedics, behavioral health or substance use. It was a conventional uh, urgency. The, it applied to the patient. It was complex and the plan of care was contingent on the consult. These are the activities I did and these are the in interventions provided. So now how do we understand the impact of ethics consultation? What, is, what does this all mean to healthcare in general? So this particular lectureship is intended to describe what is innovative or what promotes excellence in healthcare ethics. And what I would like invite you to think about is the way we have understood excellence in ethics consultation is, uh, is related to two key components, quality and value. Quality ethics consultations uh, is described according to these four dimensions, the people, the processes, the structures, and the outcomes. The people pertains to, for example, the professional staffing, our credentialed status uh, that we meet, uh, Catholic Health Association and the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities competency recommendations, that we have process, uh, excuse me, processes, guidelines, and professionalism in clinical practices, hence our bylaws document, we track and analyze our consult trends, and we also have peer review of cases and uh, engage in continuing quality improvement of our consultation practices. We also have various structures. We have a tertiary model of consultation. We have defined accountability within the organization. And I think very importantly, uh, we have electronic health record integration. This is something that was, um, was not present or not even um, uh, presumed when I started in 2010, but we advocated strongly that uh, clinicians should be able to request an ethics consultation just like they would be able to request any other specialty uh, consult in, in the normal course of clinical care. And finally, the quality outcomes of ethics consultation should promote sound ethical decision making and in alignment with our mission, should help us meet accreditation standards, for example, with the Joint Commission, uh, with uh, Catholic healthcare and the ethical and religious directives, and uh, should also promote magnet status. Um, 
and our documentation should be effective, sufficient, and appropriate. In terms of the value of ethics consultations, I invite us to think about three domains, the triple aim, our mission fidelity as a Catholic healthcare organization, and specifically Providence's vision and strategy. Some, uh, there's a lot of literature on ethics consultation and the triple aim. In particular, there's a number of studies uh, of varying degrees of um, methodological uh, approaches, uh, sorry, varying methodological approaches that try to look at the impact of ethics consultation on length of stay, on readmission, readmission rate, utilization, realization rate, and uh, patient and or provider satisfaction. Uh, Mission Fidelity looks at, in general, Catholic Healthcare has seven core commitments. Uh, those core commitments are listed there in that uh, right-hand column. And then the Providence Vision and Strategy. Uh, so there are three, three pieces to health for a better world. Strengthen our core, be our community's health partner, and transform our future. <clears throat> so when we look at, for example, the length of stay impact of ethics consultation, uh, it may be first helpful to see from 2013 to 2021, what are the typical dispositions of our ethics consultation services of patients on our, uh, that we see in our service? And you see uh, the majority uh, go home uh, or to self-care. Uh, um, many of them die or are uh, transferred to a skilled nursing facility and, and so on down the list. Not an insignificant number are transferred to a psychiatric facility or leave AMA. Um, but, uh, you know, further, further analysis of these is, is warranted. When we look at the relationship between days to consult, days from consult to discharge and the overall length of stay, we generally see that ethics consultations are requested sort of in the middle of a patient's uh, stay in an acute care facility. Some of the data suggest that uh, there is a, di a, a diminishing returns on uh, the effect of consult on length of stay after you request an ethics consult after, say, the first day of admission. Now, that's problematic because you're presuming that ethics consults should shorten the length of stay. Uh, and I would submit that not always. And so we need to, and it, that may not even be the primary um, impetus of getting the uh, ethics consult. So we have to be very cautious about um, connecting ethics consultation to these uh, metrics because we wouldn't want ethics consultations to be an arm of utilization reduction, even though there should be in aggregate a general correlation with um, high quality care and uh, ethics consultation. I've highlighted the two big houses, uh, St. Vincent's and Prague Portland here uh, for you. And I would just submit that further analysis uh, on this is, is warranted. Uh, two of my colleagues, Mark Repenchek and Mary Holman, have looked at this in a variety of ways. Um, uh, Repenchek has looked at this by uh, trying to track the, the variance between expected um, length of stay derived from a uh, subscription database, Premier. Uh, versus what is observed. Uh, and uh, Mary uh, Homan has looked at this by looking by comparing it uh, the geometric mean length of stay for the um, MSDRG uh, in ethics consultation. 
and, and noting the variance there. So <clears throat> more analysis is, is uh, forthcoming. In this particular case, we see that, you know, because disposition was the particular uh, question, we had to uh, understand the morality of various disposition options. And in this case, uh, it was noted in that particular time that we did not have sufficient uh, evidence that the patient was incapable of making this disposition uh, decision. And so we, we didn't have the justification to impose on his liberty. Moreover, imposing care and prolonging the hospitalization was thought to be uh, a safety risk and likely not feasible and potentially might cause more harm, especially if his behaviors began to escalate. And thirdly, guardianship processes could occur whether he was hospitalized or not. So on balance, uh, it was felt to be, uh, his disposition home was felt to be relatively un unsafe um, and was allowed to do so. In terms of our mission fidelity uh, impact, <clears throat> one of the um, core commitments is promote and defend human dignity. Uh, these are the three, uh, three of the many uh, um, indicators do we train our caregivers to identify and, and respond to ethical concerns? Again, primary ethics. We have a whole arm of our center that is devoted to educational programming. Do you have and promote ethics consultation for patients and families or for caregivers? The answer to both of those is yes. In terms of our vision and strategy within Providence, uh, ethics consultation seeks to, in, in terms of uh, under the rubric of strengthening our core, uh, areas of, of services. Uh, ethics consultation enables and empowers caregivers and leaders to address ethical issues within their scope. It is available across the continuum of care to reflect the integration of the delivery system across that continuum. And uh, ethics consultation promotes respectful, inclusive, and equitable care for patients and caregivers from diverse communities. So in conclusion, uh, I want to just share a little bit of a quote with you from Pope Francis, because I think it really captures this intersection of professional practice and uh, what we try to do in ethics consultation under this uh, sense of accompaniment. There is no shortage of men and women of goodwill, scholars included, with differing approaches to religion and with a variety of anthropological and ethical visions who are agreed on the need to propose a more authentic wisdom about life in view of the common good. Open and fruitful dialogue can and must be pursued between all those committed to seeking meaningful foundations for human existence. The responsible accompaniment of human life from conception to natural death involves discernment and understanding born of love. It is a task for men and women who are free and dedicated, a task for shepherds, not hirelings. It's been a privilege to be with you uh, this morning, and it's been a, an honor to serve you as ethicist for the past 10 years. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Great, many, many thanks, Dr. Crackler, for your, your thoughts um, and some really fascinating uh, data regarding the work of our, our ethics program. Um, as I wait for additional comments and questions to filter in, I have one very specific question here. Could you um, comment or have data um, on home and community care annual volumes? Um, if I can go back maybe to that slide, um, it has been a generally a fraction of our service. Mm -hmm. 
can see, well, so this is our uh, consultation service dashboard. And if I look at um, home and community care, we see that uh, to date, year to date, there's been about three that we've recorded. I think that's a little underrepresented. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I would say over the course of the year, we've been, I would estimate on the order of five to 10 consults for our home and community care. Now, I, I, I think that has been in recent past, uh, recent years, it's been the, most, the fastest growing um, area of consultation. So um, we've, I've noticed a significant trend in the uh, bump in the numbers for home and community care. Uh, and we also just, um, uh, they just organized uh, their own home services ethics committee to help uh, bring in a more proactive or preventative posture to addressing ethical uh, questions. So I think that's going to be, that's going to be interesting to see what the trend does, you know, because as you do more preventative work, uh, the numbers might actually go down uh, and that's okay. <laughs> so mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll see what, what those numbers are. Great, thanks so much. An excellent example of engagement in the community. Um, another question related to volumes, um, I think specifically referring to seeing kind of the, um, the, the difference between St. Vincent and Prague Portland. Um, could differences between hospitals also have to do with different patient populations? For example, do we get more socially complex cases with an increasing need for ethics support at Prague Portland um, because of income disparity, uh, drug issues, et cetera, um, that you may see more at that specific hospital location? That is a question I want to ask and go into our data to better understand. I can't speak um, uh, from a data standpoint yet, but my hypothesis is uh, there's something to that intuition that there's a difference in the patient populations served by those two ministries. It does seem that there are more behavioral health or patients at, at Proud Portland in, on our consult service that have behavioral health comorbidities. Uh, whether it's a statistically significant difference, I, I don't know yet, um, but I, I do suspect that there's there's something there. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Um, again, waiting for any additional questions to come in. Um, I'll I'll go back to to the um, useful and fascinating diagram um, provided with regard to flow, a uh, really mm -hmm. interesting concept and a visual that I think um, helped me out. Um, it's a little bit interesting to think about uh, our own ability to identify when we may or may not be um, in the stream. Um, I wondered if you have particular um, thoughts on whether providers tend to uh, perhaps over or under consult our ethics colleagues? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, and I don't think we adequately understand the interior uh, phenomenon of um, what where caregivers are. You know, so there's a, different ways we can slice the, the question, right? Um, if the hypothesis is that the more competent you are, the more experience you have, um, the, the less distress or anxiety you may experience in the, in the provision of care, that might argue for more consults coming earlier in one's career versus later. But I don't know if we have the data to sort of affirm that hypothesis or not. It also kind of depends on how much exposure caregivers have or, or providers have to ethics, uh, ethics education, ethics consultation in their training. 
And uh, so I think, you know, they're given the very varied approaches to ethics education in medical school and residency. Um, there's there's a it, it's hard to, to necessarily track that. Um, what I can say is it seems, you know, we have an interesting uh, set of case studies to uh, interrogate because of our integration with MedEd. You know, when we do noon conferences regularly, when we round and do teaching rounds uh, and have an ethics rotation, which I think is, is a national distinction that we have that many, if not any other uh, community-based hospital system has, uh, you know, we are exposing our residents to a lot more ethics than our, our uh, peers in, in the healthcare world. So that could correlate with fewer ethics consults wherever their practice setting ends up being. So um, a lot more to unpack there, but there's there's something that we need, we need to better understand the interiority of where caregivers are, where providers are when it, when it comes to identifying ethical issues. There was a, a sociologist in um, by the name of Renee Fox who uh, back in the late 90s had uh, asked the question, is medicine asking too much of bioethics? And her, her thesis, I believe, was uh, it's um, in a sense uh, farming out uh, ethical sensitivity and ethical competencies that should be part of the practice of medicine. And so, uh, and she used uh, psychology as, as the historical case in point in the, in the 60s and 70s when medical schools began to teach um, uh, psychology and uh, psycho uh, psychiatric curricula in their schools, what was happening uh, to medicine when it was um, putting behavioral health issues on, onto the shoulders of others. Um, so it's it, there's more to understand here for sure. Great, really fascinating comments there. And we may have one final question that pertains to the some of that perspective of Dr. Fox. I want to be respectful of our time. It is 9.02. Um, I'm going to just give one brief comment and then leave with a final question for those who are able to stay. Um, so just a comment from one of our listeners um, commenting that a person with the ACL score of the specific patient um, concerns about their driving um, and really should be um, notifying the DMV. Um, and then finally, um, Dr. Cockler, you make the point of an ethics consult often provides an opportunity to hold space for many of the providers involved. And this question specifically asks, can you talk a little bit about burnout among ethicists um, nationally and what are your personal approaches in this space? That's a really important question and one that I've, I've taken to heart uh, here. Uh, I'll put it in, in, this, in these terms. Our work, in our work, and particularly in ethics consultation, we, we engage a very skewed patient population. We are called into situations where, you know, sort of by definition, things aren't right, or, or there's, you know, high stakes, high emotional uh, uh, dynamics and the risk for uh, uh, vicarious trauma, vicarious um, or secondary traumatic stress, I think is significant in our field. Uh, we at the Ethics Center have um, promoted, uh, have emphasized self-care as a, uh, a key component to our professional practice. 
So without taking space and time for ourselves to recharge our batteries to, to cultivate that resiliency, um, I think we are at significant risk for burnout. Unfortunately, this is a dark secret, and I don't think that people have had the courage yet to shine a light on it. But I do think that, um, my, I'll, I'll say anecdotally, I do think that there is a propensity for uh, mental health issues, substance use issues within our field that I don't know if we've adequately wrestled with. And so um, in terms of institutional justice, in terms of re cultivating resiliency and self-care, it's all part of what we need to do in order to stay engaged in this work. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your talk, Dr. Cockler, and um, particularly for the work of the Ethics Center um, and the broader work uh, among the Providence St. Joseph system. Thanks very much. Thank you. Be well.